The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, there's a lot of things going on this time of year. Of course, we're all familiar with the commercialization. We're familiar with just all of the different celebrations, there's decorations, there's many different things, but a a word that maybe we don't think about in terms of Christmas is the word emancipation or liberation that I want us to think about today. Why did Christ come at Christmas? There's a number of different passages that talk about why Christ came, but part of the answer is in Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to give you this passage to set up our study here. Let's read this out loud together. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is speaking of Christ. He took on human nature, and he did that to to destroy and to deliver and to deal with, with fear. That passage goes on to say he had to become made like his brothers in every way. And he mercifully now and experientially can help us in any of our weaknesses because he experienced that. He didn't just come as a man. He came as a baby and he grew up and he knew all the experiences of life and temptation but without sin. And then That passage in Hebrews also says that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for for those who would believe. Many sons, he was going to bring them to glory. And he calls us brothers, that passage says. He's not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, even though we have lived so much of our lives in shameful sin. And he calls us brothers who had been slaves all of our life. That's what it says, a lifelong slavery. This is one of the glories of Christmas grace for us to ponder and to treasure that that way that he frees us, liberates us, emancipates us through his coming. There's a story told from a couple hundred years ago where there was a slave market and a rich man came there. And there was a a slave who did not speak English who was being sold at, at auction and The master with the judge paid to redeem and to pay in full and and by chains took him to the courthouse. And he he paid to redeem him and to release him, but the, the slave couldn't understand these words that were being told to him. So an interpreter helped explain that your chains are are gone now. You you've actually been set free of those bad men, and you're no longer a slave. And once he understood what this man had actually done, he said to the man, Master, I want to go with you. I want to stay with you. I don't want to leave my fate to anyone else. I want to serve you. And the master said, I'll I'll let you, but you've got to come into my home, and you're going to serve me as a son, judge. I want you right now, on the record, whatever other legal fees are needed, I want to adopt this slave right now, and with my full name and with my full inheritance, I want the record to show that this slave is now my son. 
That's a fictional story, probably. It's been told in different ways. But there is a true story behind that, which is actually the Christmas story that I want us to look at in Galatians chapter 4, if you would begin turning there. And in biblical law, we've been studying this. There were times where slaves were treated as a child. There were also times where someone would be set free but would choose, because they love this master, to serve him and to stay with him for the rest of their life. There were also times in the society where the New Testament was written where Roman rich rulers would adopt a slave to be their son. If you've seen the Ben-Hur story, that's part of the, the, the slave story that could be there. But here's a, a twist on the story there, or here's something that's different about the Christmas story. If you already had a son, sometimes you didn't have a son of your own, and so you would adopt a son, so you would now have an heir. If you already had a son, if you already had an heir, no man ever sent his son, to die for enemy slaves. But that's what we're going to see in the Christmas story. For us who were slaves of sin, the Bible says we were, because of our sin, enemies of God. All of our lives we were law-breaking to God's face. God gave his son to make us his sons, despite our sin against him. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 was in church history part of the Christmas liturgy. And it may have been sung early in the church. I want us to look at this passage together, Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. No longer a slave, meaning you're no longer enslaved to sin anymore. And heir means you have full inheritance rights And full intimacy with the Father. Abba was a term of affection and also protection. This is the term, even little boys, you can even hear this in the Middle East today, crying out Abba when they're lost. This is the term, crying out to the the Father for help. Christ was born to make slaves into sons. This is maybe something we don't think about in Christmas that we need to hear. The word slave is used of Christians in the same book. In chapter 1, verse 10, we, we are to be slaves of Jesus in another kind of slavery. Chapter 1, verse 10 says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's the same word, slave of Christ, in our passage here. The word slave, we're not to be a slave of sin, we're not to be a slave of fear in Hebrews 2. And here in chapter 1, people-pleasing is a slavery that we need to be free from to live to please God. We need to be concerned with his approval. That's what needs to control us and, and dominate us, not what other people think. I'm not living as his bondservant or as his slave, totally owned by him, if I'm living and letting the opinions of other people control me and own me and master me. Don't live in the fear of man, the beginning of this book says. Christ came to free, to redeem 
you from that owning you. He is the master. That's what Lord means, who we are to slave for, but not in fear like before. And not as mere slaves, even though that's our nature. Even the fear of death Christ frees us from. And the glorious truth of Galatians 4 is that we are adopted slaves. We are actually made sons. We are made heirs of eternal riches. And this letter of Galatians, Paul is writing to a church that was being tempted, and he was astonished that they were turning away to things other than Christ, other than the gospel, to another gospel. And there is no other gospel. They were turning to ceremonies. They were... They were turning to salvation by works plus grace. But Galatians is about true gospel grace in contrast to legalistic bondage, adding things to religion that man does. And gospel grace frees from that kind of slavery. Last week we looked at spiritual slavery and the the doctrines of, of grace, how we were Before Christ, totally enslaved to sin apart from grace. But then we were graciously chosen from bondage and graciously redeemed as his own and graciously called from death to life, graciously preserved to serve the master. Sometimes there's other terms used with that, like unconditionally chosen or lovingly or particularly, I think is a better word, redeemed as his and irresistibly called from death to life, like Lazarus come forth and preserved to serve the master. You'll see different acronyms. I, I want to give you an acronym for Christmas grace here this morning. Christmas grace makes the believer God's redeemed, adopted child eternally. That's what grace is, G-R-A-C-E. I, I want us to remember as we think of grace that if, if you're a believer in Christ, you are God's redeemed, adopted child Eternally, and, and that's right here in Galatians 4. I want us to walk through that. We're graciously chosen, graciously redeemed, graciously called to life, graciously preserved, all of that. But Galatians 4, verse 4 starts with God. We're God's, and what he did with his son to, to make us his, and then we're redeemed. Galatians 4, verse 5 says, We were redeemed under the law, and then we were adopted, he goes on to say in verse 5, so that we may receive the adoption as sons. And then we're his child, verse 6. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is what a child does. And then it is eternally. Galatians 4, 7 ends with sons being heirs. This is our eternal inheritance with Christ. But we start with God, the letter G, and we always need to start with God. Verse 4 says, he sent his son in the fullness of time. It was his son. Before time came, he was his son, but in time now, God the Son steps into this world. God sent his son, and then it says he was born of a woman. This is what's new. God always, there was always God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but now something new comes into the world where the Son of God is born of a woman, it says. This is all part of prophecy 4,000 plus years earlier, the the first prophecy after the first sin of the first man and woman was that there would be a seed of a woman who would come and would ultimately defeat the the serpent. It would actually crush or bruise the serpent's head. There would be a seed of a woman who would come and 
Other prophecies would fill out the picture. Isaiah said he would be born of a woman. And he would be called wonderful. This child who would be born would be called wonderful, counselor, mighty, what? God. This child who's born is actually the mighty God. Prince of Peace, all of that. He had to be fully man as well as fully God at the same time to accomplish salvation. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. It was in the fullness of time that we sang, Behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more, what? May die. That's why he came. He was born to live so that we can be born again and live forever. That's what the herald angels sang. That's what we were singing earlier. And Hebrews 2 says he took on flesh so that by death he would defeat death. He would defeat sin. He would defeat Satan. All of that. This is also to defeat our fears. I love how the songs kind of weave that theme of fear together. The children sang to us, do not fear. We need to hear that as adults. Do not fear. So many things we can fear. And into this world of fear comes Christ. And throughout the Christmas story, there's that note of do not fear. The angel comes to Mary and says, do not fear. And to Zechariah, do not fear. And then we heard it read earlier to the shepherds as they came in the fields. They said, do not fear. That passage from Hebrews says, Christ came to deliver us from that fear that can enslave us. The hopes and fears of all the years come together in Christ. And Galatians 4 verse 4 says, he was born under the law. He had to be born under the law because no man is above God's law, even the son of man. We've been studying God's moral law in the Ten Commandments, and we'll be continuing to study God's law here on Sunday mornings. And when you study God's law, you realize we've all broken it, when you understand it rightly. We've all let things other than God be number one. That's the number one command. We've all let words slip from our mouths that are irreverent of God using his name in vain. That's the third commandment. We've all lied lusted in some way, looked with coveting at what someone else has, or or just not loved others as much as we love ourselves. We've all done that. And Galatians 5.14 says, the law is summed up in love. You need to love your neighbor as yourself, but we don't. We are all law breakers. And Galatians 2.16 says, by the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No person has ever been able to keep the whole law. That's that's part of the story of why Christ had to come. To be justified means to be saved, declared righteous by the judge. But none of us can do that by keeping the law. And the more we try to keep the law, the more we are under a curse, Scripture says. We can't keep it all. That's our curse. Look at Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed, this is God's judgment, be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you don't 
abide and continually keep all of God's law all of the time. There is a divine curse. There's a judgment on all of your efforts and all of your works. The law cannot save us. Verse 12 says, righteousness is by faith in Jesus. And Jesus was born under the law for us. Jesus comes to keep the law for us. He actually fully kept every jot and tittle, every little detail and little commandment and big commandment as we would consider it. But all of it, he kept all of it. His righteous life perfectly obeyed the perfect ten commandments. He fully loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, all the time. He fully loved neighbors as himself, including neighbors who were enemies. And then he took sin's curse for us. Look at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's also from the law. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus died for our law-breaking. But first he lived as our law keeper to fulfill all righteousness. Everything he did, even his baptism, when John says, no, you should be baptizing me, he says, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. He redeemed us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. And so that's the next word in our outline, the letter R, redeemed is the next word. And it's the the key verse in Galatians 4, verse 5, that he came to redeem those who were under the law. Christ was born under the law to redeem us who were under the law, but couldn't get ourselves out from under the law's condemnation and the law's curse. Remember, we were slaves. We couldn't just change that condition. And the middle of verse 3 says we were also enslaved to this world and its principles. Part of that slavery in verse 8 of chapter 4 is to false religion, false beliefs, false gods, all all those false ideas that can enslave people. But God sends his son to redeem sinners from slavery to sin and from all of the effects that come with that. He became a curse for us. We deserve the curse. He became the curse for us. He bore the curse for us as he hung on the tree at Calvary. A cursed one could hang on the tree. Jesus hangs on the tree as a cursed sinner. Even though he had committed no sin, he takes the place of those as he's lived the perfect life and now bears the, the punishment of a sinner on the cross as Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus would be lifted up on a a cross, and he would be lifted up to defeat the serpent for all who would believe him. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. That's from John chapter 3, and that's rooted in Genesis 3, where the serpent is, is... First put down to, to bite the dust in defeat, but the prophecy said the serpent would, would bite the heel of the, of the Messiah to come. There would be a, a fatal wound as the, the poison, the venom, if you will, of, of the enemy would come against this, this one who would come to crush or bruise the serpent's head. He would be wounded fatally in the process, but he would be victorious because he would rise again. And all of this is... When Galatians says, in the fullness of time. This is talking about Christmas time. When Christ came, he came to redeem, to set us free from Satan's tyranny. 
O come, Emmanuel. We sing to ransom captives. We're captive in our sin. We need to be ransomed. There needs to be the payment of a price that we would be set free. And this book begins in chapter 1 saying that Jesus gave himself for us to deliver us. That's what he came for. And the ransom price, the redemption price in the law was life for life. If you'll be with us as we're back in Exodus chapter 21, that's going to be the next section we're going to be looking at. Life for life, eye for eye. Moses wrote in Genesis 3, in the beginning of the law, the first five books of Moses, he wrote about how sin brought a curse. The payment for sin is death. If you eat from that tree, you die. You sin, you violate the covenant and transgress against God, you die. There's that promise there, and there's this description in Genesis 3 that a curse has now come upon the world because of sin. The world was perfect before But now there's thorns. Now there's thistles. Now we work by the sweat of our brow. Work is hard now. And it also says there would be sorrow. There would be sorrow through through childbirth, through family, even through children. Even though there's blessings in the midst of that, there is difficulty in this sin-cursed world. Because Adam failed, we needed another Adam. We needed another covenant Head. We needed another representative. We needed someone else to come. Another man to represent all in him. Another one who would prevail with temptation. He would see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life offered by the serpent, but would, would defeat the enemy. And that's what Jesus did. That's why he came. It's only through that that God and sinner can be Reconciled. It's this second Adam from above. In the Hark the Herald Angels sing, Reinstate us in thy love. And then we sing, Enjoy to the world, No more let sin and sorrows grow, Nor thorns infest the ground. This is thinking back to what happened in Genesis. No more let the sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, and and we might say ultimately, he comes again to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That begins with his first coming for those who believe in him, but he's actually going to come to to judge the world and rule the world with truth and grace. And there's redeeming joy to the world for all on earth who before that day receive their king. He will rule the world. And only those trusting Jesus as their king in this world, in this life, are redeemed. You need to come like the wise men. You need to come seeking him. Seek the king of the Jews. He's the king. Come to worship him. Bow down before him. Lay down whatever you treasure in this life before him. Make Jesus your treasure. Look to Jesus as your prophet, as your priest, as your king. Bow before him humbly. Repent of your works and receive Christ's works. You don't just repent of your sinful works. Repent of your your self-righteous works, your efforts to try to please God by your own efforts. You need to realize all of that falls short of the glory of God. The Bible says you're not a good person, and you can't be good enough to go to heaven, and neither can I. But it gives us grace if you will renounce your sin, if you will 
renounce your self-righteousness and if you will rely on Christ alone, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his reigning power right now at the Father's right hand, all of that is before you today. If you come before him humbly and, and beg him to forgive you and to make you a, a child of God, you can receive that this very day. This can be, Christmas can be the dawn of redeeming grace. If you understand what his grace did to redeem you, to trust him, if you need help with that, we'd love to talk with you, pray with you, but you can even cry out to him now to receive you, to receive you as his child. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And by grace, you can become God's redeemed, the next two are adopted child. I'm going to treat those two together. Adopted Child, Look again at chapter 4, verse 4. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's a number in this room who have been adopted under the laws of this land. Some who have been adopted in other lands as well. And... You know there can be great cost in court systems. There can be great sacrifice, great travel, all of that. But all of that pales in comparison to the adoption that's being talked about here. Think of Christ. Think of how far he came. Think of the, the magnitude, the greatness of the sacrifice that was given. And think that he did that for those who were under the law's judgment. He did that for for those who deserved judgment, were sinners. So when God came to adopt us, we weren't cute kids on a picture on a fridge. We were criminals. And we were violating God's own law. We were under the law's judgment. We were doing ugly sins, deserving death, according to Scripture. One of the sad realities on the human level is many of the fatherless in our world, and it's been this way throughout world history, end up in lives of crime and various things. But see, we, when God came for us, we weren't victims. We were villains under the law's just penalty. But here's what Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us in him and in love he adopted us and predestined us to be his sons we were totally enslaved children of wrath but god ephesians 2 by grace saved us and made us a part of his family we are members of his own household ephesians 2 says he made us alive by grace through faith But even that was not of ourselves. It was all of him. It was all of grace. And he made us accepted in the beloved son in whom we have redemption. And we have the riches of his inheritance and his love that are lavished upon us. Lavish riches. You can study that in Ephesians 1 through 2. But God comes and he treats as his son all of us adopted sons and daughters. Even as we were children of wrath by nature like the rest of mankind. And sometimes people hear about God doing all of this and 
and all of his grace, and it's all of him, and you hear words like election and predestined, and think, well, if, if that's all true, then are we just robots? Some think that it's, it's got to be us, or, or else it's just a, that we, uh, we've got to have some part of it, or else it's a fatalistic, cold idea. But I think even this picture of adoption can help us understand that on a human level. When I went to Congo, and I chose and adopted my son, and under the law, did all the requirements and the fees and, and all of the process that was involved in that. At first, my son didn't speak English. He didn't understand all that I was trying to do. He didn't trust me, obviously, at the time. But under, over time, he loved me in return. And there was a day when I was still in Congo when he called me Papa Wangu. And Didier explained to me in Swahili, that is, that's like Abba. That's like my daddy. And, and Paul says, in, in a greater way, by grace of adoption, we, we come to love, but it's all because he first loved us. It's he first loved us. We're not robots. It's real love, but it's in response to his in an infinitely greater way. We can cry to him as our Abba. Galatians 4 verse 9 says, Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. The fact that if you know God, it's, it's that you actually were known by God, known in the sense of he, he set his love upon you. We do genuinely know him now as believers. We, we love, we choose him, and that's real, and it's because of what he did for us first. And what he did wasn't just wipe away sin. He actually warmly welcomes us into the family. I mean, that would be amazing enough if he just wiped away our sins so we weren't punished eternally, but he actually goes beyond that by warmly welcoming us into the family as sons and daughters. Isn't that amazing? Justification means that we are declared legally right with God. That is an amazing truth, but adoption takes it a step further. It says we are, we are lovingly his. We are his children. In every sense of the word, it's not just a judge letting us go. This is a judge actually letting us go home with him. Because everything has been taken care of legally and judicially and lovingly. And now there is table grace that he offers. And it's for former enemies. But they're now family. It's, it's a wonderful thing. We are not just, as believers, pardoned instead of executed by justice. We're actually part of his family. And he loves us and treats us like he does his own begotten son. So, so we've been learning about the story of Exodus. And we'll be back in it next year, the story of Moses. And remember, he was a slave who was adopted and was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Remember that story with him? In the basket and all that, he was seen by the king as an enemy. He was under the law, under its death sentence, as all of the Jewish baby boys were. But he's still in bondage. He's born in bondage. And there is a compassionate parent who hears the cry and rescues him and then raises Moses, as the daughter of Pharaoh, raises him in royalty and riches. He was exposed to the element. He was utterly helpless. He wasn't doing anything. He's just there. All he can do is cry out. He would have died. He could not deliver himself. But here's what Acts 7.21 says. When the baby was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And so here he's, 
He's going to die. He's the enemy of the king, and yet he is brought into the king's own family. And the king's table would be open to his children and to his grandchildren. He grows up living in a palace with Egypt's riches, but the writer of Hebrews tells us that Moses saw there was greater riches in Christ. There, there's far greater riches than any human story, but there's other poverty to palace stories in the Bible. There's other adoption type stories. Esther chapter 2 verse 7 says, When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translation says, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. The Jewish Tanakh also and other translations have that language. Whatever legal status she had exactly in a Jewish minority community, her status now is radically changed when she becomes the bride of the king. She now lives in the palace with the king. The government leaders at that time saw the Jews as people to exterminate. They wanted all of them dead. But here is Esther sitting at the king's table, literally, for such a time as that. There's one more story I love, 2 Samuel 9, where David said, this is when David had come to power after Saul and Jonathan and the former dynasty had died. There was his enemies. David said, is Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness? Saul's house had been enemies to David. They wanted to kill him. But here there is an heir of Saul's house, and his name is Mephibosheth. And David said to him in verse 7, he had him come, and he's fearful, and he says, Don't be afraid. Do not fear. That's what we've been hearing sung. Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness. He's he's thinking, I'm being brought to the king. He was in hiding. But now he's being brought, and he's thinking, I'm probably going to die, because that's what you normally would do. Anyone who might have had a legal claim or biological claim to the former king who was an enemy would would be killed. They would kill their whole family. So here he comes, but instead of killing him, he says, I'm going to show you kindness And I will restore to you, he says to Mephibosheth, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, all the land of the king, and all that he had. And then he says this, and you shall eat at my table continually. And he gave him all that had belonged to King Saul in that chapter, 2 Samuel 9. And he repeats it again in verse 10, that you will always, he will always have a place at the palace table. And then again, verse 11, he says, this is the third time he says it now, As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And it says at the end of that chapter, Mephibosheth so dwelt in Jerusalem... And he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. He had been crippled all his life because he had been dropped, and he can't walk, and so he's crippled. He has to be carried. Every single mealtime, he has to be carried there. And this is a a picture of, of grace. That's the word kindness. It's the Old Testament word for grace. Who can I show grace to? This is kindness to an enemy. With the greater son of David, think about this. We, we are not just in Christ like 
the king's sons. We actually are the king's sons. Think about that. Mephibosheth got to, he got calls to, for, for food. We get to actually call God himself Father. And unlike Esther, who, who didn't know if she could really come into the presence of that evil king in Persia, we can always come to God as our Father, who is the king, and we can come boldly and with confidence to his throne of grace and find mercy and help in time of need. Isn't that glorious? We can come to the king. We have an audience with him at any time. We can come to him, and we can call him Papa. Abba, what a glorious truth that is. 2 Corinthians six seventeen. I will welcome you, God says, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. And we don't just inherit land like King Saul's in this life. Jesus says for all those who believe in him that we will inherit the new earth Eternally. And so that takes us to the last point, E, eternally. God's redeemed, adopted children eternally. It's, it's going to last forever, this last point is saying. Verse 7, Galatians 4. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Again, it's not just you're like one of the king's sons. It is the full right of a son as heir to the family inheritance. That was huge in those days. Especially if... If it was a, a great man, a great king, and, and God is greater than any earthly king you can think of, and God is actually treating us in Christ as he treats his own beloved son. The love that had always been there in the eternity past before God sent his son into the world, that love now he brings his family, his adopted sons and daughters into to love us and to treat us just like his beloved son. James 2, 5 says, has not God chosen even those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And Paul knew this actually under the law and in practice in the first century that an adopted slave was always considered a real member of the family and his name was registered as such not only in the family register but with other members of the family in the archives of the city. And there's actually a book in Jerusalem that was recorded that was called the Book of Living or the, the Book of Life. Where, and, and think of that. That language is picked up by Scripture saying the names of all of those that the Lord has adopted from slavery to sin. We are also registered. It is written down. Names are in the book of life that is in the heavenly Jerusalem, and they will never be blotted out, and we are brought into the king's family. I mean, think about this. We are welcome to the table as much as the king himself. We, we talk about the Lord's table that we celebrate, but really it's, a, it's to remind us of the king's table that we're a part of, and that the king is coming again. And so this all ties in with the Christmas story that was read earlier. The emperor at that time, Caesar Augustus, who declared that the census would be done, he had actually been adopted. He was not biologically related to Julius Caesar. He had been adopted, and Roman law let rulers make sons by adoption, and even slaves their sons. There were actually, I think, four Caesars, emperors. Caesar was a title, not a name. 
There were four in a row who the heir after them was not their biological son. They had adopted them. So their culture understood how you could be not biologically related to the king, even the highest emperor, and yet a full uh, recipient of of rulership rightly in in all of that. The, The idea of even a slave becoming a son of a king, they knew that. But But here's something that was utterly unheard of, the king becoming a slave. Wherever do you have this story of the king choosing to become a slave? You know, there's rags to riches story, but but riches to rags stories are not what we hear of. And here we have heaven's king going from paradise down to poverty. And 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, I mean, that's an understatement, all the glories of the universe, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty, might become rich. That's why Christ came. He, he laid the, the, the glory by, the riches, and all of the, the glories of what was going on in, in heaven. While still fully God, he willingly, submissively, voluntarily, temporarily puts himself under the limitations of humanity and even is as a slave for us, the highly exalted master took on the very form of a slave. Philippians 2 verse 7 says, And because of that grace, we who are slaves can become sons and can, become, can be heirs of that glorious riches. Jesus did not just come and take the chains off of us. That would be glorious enough. He puts the chains on himself as under the law, as son of man. Jesus came under the law that he had inspired as the son of God. Think about that. He actually inspired that law, and he's now putting himself under it. He was born of woman, Galatians says. He was born of woman so that men and women can be born of God. He's born of woman so that we can be born of God. He was born in an earthly manger so that we can inherit heavenly mansions. The judge of the universe, the judge of all the earth, comes out from behind the bench. It's like he's here and he he now comes out behind the bench. He takes off his honorable robes and he goes down there himself. He takes the place of criminals himself. Jesus literally did that with Barabbas, who was a condemned criminal, and he is being crucified on the cross where Barabbas was to be crucified, literally. But it's a picture spiritually of his substitutionary death and how the creator now is taking on the the nature of a a creature, of of a humanity. He's being treated like a sinner, even though he's not. The, The perfect Lord that we must obey put himself under imperfect parents. Imagine that. You're perfect. Your parents are not. Some of you think that's the case, but... But it actually was the case for him, and he obeyed them anyways. Unbelievable. Shailen says it this way, At the age of 12 in the temple, he amazed at his insights. He obeyed his parents, even though he created their windpipes. (laughs) He created their voices that were even saying things, and he obeyed them. So Joseph, did you know this newborn boy you just washed clean with water, that he would cleanse you from your sins so you could meet your heavenly father. From the stable to the 
to your table, you raise the king of the Jews and the Lord that you must submit to as your boy submitted to you. Did you know that little boy you would teach to tie his shoes? This son that you adopted would die to adopt you. What a glorious thing that as he, he's brought up by his adoptive father, Joseph, but he now brings many to be adopted into his family, many sons to glory, to a heavenly Abba, but he had to redeem first on the cross. And it's interesting, he doesn't speak of his disciples as adopted or as his brothers yet until the resurrection. Because once he died and when he rose, then he says for the first time, this is in John 20, go tell my brothers. Just days earlier, he said they were slaves, but he's also calling them friends. But now he says, tell my brothers. And that becomes the, the term now. We're brothers, not just brothers with one another and sisters in Christ, but brothers with Jesus. And he says, tell my brothers, I am ascending to my father and your father. He's your father as much as he is mine now. As he died, he redeemed his followers to adoption as sons and his brothers with the same father. So here's Romans eight fourteen: All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Isn't that amazing? We share as heirs with Christ, the one who has the firstborn place. That means the preeminent place. His siblings are all heirs, sharing his inheritance. Romans 8 goes on to say, He's the firstborn among many brothers. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's done that, the message is you don't need to fear. He's going to give you everything you need, whatever you have to face in the future, in the days ahead, in the years ahead. If, if you know the Lord as your master but also as your brother and God as your father, if he's done that, he's going to graciously give you all things you need so do not fear. If you are God's redeemed, adopted child eternally. That's Christmas grace. We're in the family because of him, not because of us. And, and here's the good news. Our standing in God's family is never based on our performance. It's always based on Christ's performance for us. And his life, his death, his active and passive righteousness and all of that. That's the wonder of Christmas. I pray we do not lose that wonder. Whatever else we are doing today or tomorrow, let's praise him. Let's make much of him and let's show his grace. Let's be gracious and loving people to those in our family and to those who need grace just as much as we did. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Our great and gracious God, we thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ. And I ask, Lord, that you would help each of us to not fear. That you would increase, that we would decrease. And that we would marvel at the, the liberation that is ours. And that, as Paul says in the same book, that even though we are free, that we would use that to serve one another. Because we are bound to serve 
And so help us to serve even, even today and even in our time of fellowship now. For Christ's sake we pray in his glory. Amen.